you guys have been with Chris for any length of time, or ministered alongside him in any context, and he asks you to teach, it's typically the most vague invitation you can possibly receive that has no specificity to it whatsoever and gives you every possible range of direction that you can go. And it's really fun. I actually really enjoy it. It stretched me and moved me to be a different kind of teacher. Um, our lives have been profoundly changed by the work that Chris and Merrill have done in us as a couple, uh, in Anthem Church in Thousand Oaks, our family of churches, and now being a part of the Genesis Collective. Our world has been shaped and changed and molded uh, by these wonderful spirit-filled people, and we love, we love the story that we're walking in. And I'm so excited to be here with you guys tonight. It is an absolute joy. Uh, I hope the sweats aren't getting to you just yet. Uh, you know, just hold on, and then you can eat some tacos and sweat a little more, and it'll be really fun. Who does not love to sweat while eating tacos? It's the best. All right. Uh, so Chris asked me to talk about where Genesis Church has come from. Essentially looking, oh, thank you, Dana. Essentially looking at the years that, uh, that have been in existence, five years of this church and what it's meant to get to this point. So just spending some time processing through that. Um, Kristen and I love to look at Zillow. We have a wonderful house, by the way. We love our house. It's more like hobby looking, where you just kind of look through Zillow and just see what's out there. And, you know, you kind of critique the different houses and say, we like this or don't like this or whatever. I see lots of nods and smiles. So I guess there are a few of us that do that. And that's fine. Um, but I, I get a chance right now to look at this house and share what we love about this house. What we see, what, what the impact has been that has come from this place and has genuinely been spread around the world. So if you have a Bible, open them up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Or if you have a phone, you can type in 1 Thessalonians 2 because I didn't hear a lot of pages turning. That's just the way that it goes now and that's fine. There are three things that we're going to look at tonight, and these are just things that we've seen that have made an impact around the world, that this church is a humble church, that this church is a generous church, and that this church is a table church. Those are going to be the three things that we're going to look at uh, tonight. So the first one to talk about the, uh, the humble nature of this church. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, and 6. It says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. It's been something amazingly humble woven into the fabric of this church. I've been invited to preach at Genesis Church a few different times. I got to preach at Skyler. I got to preach in the Dick Church's parking lot uh, yeah. back in March. It does make a man. It does. It's, uh, I think it, yeah, it's a big, big part of that growing up process. Uh, I remember teaching. I got to teach on Ephesians chapter 2 in the Dick Church's parking lot. And while I was preaching, uh, I'm standing there at the intersection of the 55 Freeway and Mesa Boulevard. And I've never heard noise coming off the freeway like I've heard in the Dick Church's parking lot. <laughs> And then at the same time as that, it's in the flight path of John Wayne Airport. So these giant planes are coming over about every five to eight minutes. There's another plane that just comes over the Dick Church's parking lot. And then I'm not sure what the business next door was, but whatever the business next door was, it involved lots of air compressors and uh, hammer drills, pressure drills, things of that nature. Just lots of rat-a-tat-tat. And uh, you're sitting there in a place like this and seeing that the context does not match the content of the people that you're looking at. The context is a distracted one. 
Cars zipping every which way, planes flying over, drills thumping away at whatever was going on next door. And there was a people in that parking lot that lifted up the name of Jesus, prayed with passion and hunger and joy, that listened to me when I taught for 45 minutes about Ephesians chapter 2 in a parking lot. There's something humble that was built into who this church is. That's shaping and marking, and it does not leave you. What I've seen the last two times I've been here in this room is the same church, even though half of you were not there in Dick Church's parking lot. Those things have been passed on and have been woven into who you are as a church, whether you were there or not. It's been unbelievable to watch the humility of this church shape you. I see it. I see you. And I love you even though I don't know you. And there's something about you that's magnetic and draws a person in to fall in love with this church. And it is your humility. And I'm grateful for it. It's marked this place. This is not a church that sought glory from people. Orange County is a unique kind of a place. I don't like Orange County. I apologize. I know it's many of your homes, but I just don't like driving around here. It's just got a, it's got a funky feel to it, if I'm being totally honest. Everybody seems to be just trying to do a little bit better than the person around them, be a little bit fitter, be a little bit shinier, just get your hair cut a little bit nicer, and look a little bit better. It just has that feel to it. And I'm not saying you're an ugly church. <laughs> but what I'm seeing is a very countercultural. even though you live here, you are among the people here, you've grabbed a hold of something that is not this place and said, I'm going to follow a different way. And that's humility. And I want to encourage you in that. The second thing that I see is that you are a generous church. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. You remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, I use the word generous to describe this church, and you may look around and just say, we don't have any money. We are not a generous church. We just have nothing to give. And the reality is, you wouldn't look at Genesis Church and say it is a rich church financially. I've been on the outside elder team. I've looked at the Genesis Church, and it is not a rich church financially. But this is a generous church. This is a church that has displayed generosity in profound ways. And here's what I've seen. I've seen a church planted in Orange County. That's the sixth most expensive place to live in the nation. House prices are well over a million dollars on average, and the median household income is $94,441. Mm. And what that means is that this county is doing everything it can just to exist financially. And as part of the, the culture here is survival. And what I've seen in this church is a devotion to go way beyond survival. Even though the dollars don't always line up and there's not money free-flowing into the ministries that you would love to give to, you found a different way. 
I just want to take a minute. If you've been an intern or a resident here at Genesis Church at some time in the last five years, stand up for just a second. I want you to stand up. All right. Okay, good. Okay. All right, just look around for a second. These guys have all served in different ways. You can now sit down. These amazing young men and women worked night and day because this was not a church that could hire a staff. This was not a church that could just throw money at anything it wanted to throw money at and make whatever it wanted to have happen. So Chris invited people who had jobs, who were going to school, who were working to be doctors and nurses or trying to find their way through law school. He invited people that were on their way into a career and said, come with me. I want to show you how to serve Jesus and serve people, and it's going to be hard. I watched you guys come off of shifts at work or finish up school and then go to a prayer night and then stay afterwards and clean up. I watched you guys show up early to do church in a parking lot and do the prayer meeting and the worship practice and then go get the donuts and then pray over people while the church was worshiping and then stay after to meet with people and love them and minister to them and then pray some more and then go to Chris's house to debrief and get another message and have another prayer meeting and continue on and on and on with every, what seemed like every spare hour you had to give, you gave. And what you did is you marked this church. You marked this place to where now, five years in, this church is known by its generosity. Earlier this summer, two opportunities were presented to this humble church. Would you like to go to South Africa and serve the nations and the orphans in this beautiful place called Live Village? Would you like to go to Portugal with us? Because we want to see some leaders change the world and we need to shape and stir and build up a generation of people who will raise their hand and say, here am I. Do you want to go? And you spent thousands of dollars that you have been earning and working for or your parents gave it to you, or you found it, or you fundraised it, or you borrowed it, or you stole it, whatever <laughs> it took. And somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 people from a church of about 125 got on an airplane to fly across the world to be a part of seeing the nations shaped and the future molded in the image of Jesus Christ. This church is a generous church. And here's what I believe. I'm going to slip into a prophetic moment. I believe at some point the finances will flow. At some point the dollars will land and be entrusted to this church. And what you've done is you have laid the groundwork of generosity so that if and when those dollars are entrusted to this church, they will be placed in our humble, generous hands. And those dollars will be used to change the whole world. This is a generous church. Last thing I'll say is that this is a table church. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Something happened when this church started around a table. 
All of a sudden, it's not about getting a crowd in the door. It's not about putting on the biggest show in town. It's not about making it a place that you can come and find the person that you're going to marry or uh, get a place where you can get on stage and get your music heard or at some point be acknowledged for who and what you are and how you contribute to the world. Starting around a table means that you sit down, you look in somebody's eyes, you confess your sin, you hear a friend, a dear friend, confess their sin. You pray for each other, you eat together, you fellowship together, and you walk together in life, stirring one another up to love and good works. The table forces intimacy. It makes you a church that is about something other than the show. It turns it into seeing each other and knowing each other. And what you've done building around the table is you've brought again into the fabric of this church a church that is affectionately desirous for one another. There is love. But not just love, like we love being together. We love showing up in this sweating room. And I've watched you take care of each other. Carry each other's burdens. I've seen as there's been opportunities to rally around one of you, there is a flood of people that come and pray and minister and help and feed and bless. The table has marked this church. It's made you a church that loves each other extremely well. As Paul says this, he says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And what we're seeing happen as people go out from Genesis Church is a different picture of the gospel. We're not in this for information transfer. We're not here simply to teach words so that somebody can hear words and know words. We've moved past that a long time ago. This church has found a place of saying, we actually want to do something different. We want to build something different here. We want to share ourselves with each other. What good is the gospel if there's no life to give with it? I taught our church this morning on the doctrines of heaven and hell, and one of the beautiful things about the doctrine of heaven, you have in the Garden of Eden a tree of life. You have in heaven as we know it today a tree of life, and you have in the new heavens and the new earth a tree of life. It's the thing that God has taken from garden to heaven to new heavens and the new earth is the tree of life. There is life that flows from God. You guys have done is you've taken this character quality of God. We share life. And you've made it the very currency of this church. What do we have to give? We have life to give each other. We have hearts to give each other. There's not much else but Jesus impacting you and you giving that yourself to another person. And I just want you to hear this. 
from a brother in Christ that is not a part of this church but watches you from afar and enjoys you from afar. This is a beautiful church doing a beautiful thing, sharing its life with many. Last thing I'll share, not of those three things, but something else altogether. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, going earlier in this, verses 6 and 7, it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. I just want you to hear this. You are known around the world. And that goes two ways. You are prayed for by churches around the world because there are people, honestly, there are people that love Chris and Merrill. And so because of that, they have prayed for this church. Chris and Merrill will go minister in a place like Dubai, and then there's a church in Dubai that says, we love Chris and Merrill, we pray for them. We love Genesis Church, we pray for them. So there is a flood of prayer from around the world that has covered this church in its five-year history. And also, you, sometimes through Chris and Merrill, sometimes through Tyler and Haley, sometimes through David and Maddie, sometimes through Dana and Stu, and the many others that have gone out from here, you bless the nations. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from this place, and there is an impact happening around the world. You're looking in this room, and you're seeing 150-some people, and maybe another 20 kids outside with people serving in that group, and you're saying, well, what is this place? There are way bigger churches down the street. I can tell you this as a person that's been in ministry for a long time. There are churches 25 times the size of this church that have a tenth of the impact that you have on the nations of this world. Now, I'm not saying that for flattery. You can walk out of here feeling flattered, and Paul just said, don't use flattery. I'm saying this because I want you to know that what you are doing matters. What you are building matters. The fabric that's being woven here matters because it is a shaping church. You are a shaping church. You have voice beyond your size, fighting above your weight. You are beyond what is represented in this room. I want to encourage you in that. John Mark, it's the future, so I'll just say the present right now. Walk by faith. Walk by faith and see amazing things happen because there are churches around the world that need to find hope and you have an opportunity to be the hope of many churches in many nations. So walk by faith and see God do big and powerful things through Genesis Church. That's my encouragement to you today. Happy birthday, Genesis Church. John Mark. so many in the room for over a decade now, Chris and Meryl have been a father and a mother to my wife T and I and our whole family and God brought them into our life at a very difficult time and they have been with us through highs and lows and so we just honor you and I think on behalf of all of us we thank you. And Chris asked me to share a prophetic word with you about the future of the church. 
So I've been fasting and praying like you do and uh, for weeks now. And I just feel that I have a word from the Spirit of Jesus for you. This very clear picture in my mind of a fan, but it's not like a normal sized fan. It's a giant fan. <laughs> and it's like it's over your whole church. But it's turned off. And it's like the Spirit is saying there is pain and suffering in your community that is not necessary. And not the will of Jesus. And the Spirit is saying there is a power source in your church. You just need to turn it on. <laughs> So I, just, I invite the elders of the church to just discern if that is, uh, test it, as, as it is written, Paul's letter of the Thessalonians, test it, but I really feel that I have something. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I just want to read a very simple text that wrecked my ecclesiology, which is just a pastor word for theology of church. One sentence in one paragraph in the middle of a letter that is 2,000 years old that turned my understanding of what the church is and is not on its head. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. We don't have time to work through the passage. Let me just read an excerpt. For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Skip down to verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, family, when you gather for the sermon, nope. When you gather to sing, no. When you gather to do justice, no. When you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Every Sabbath evening, we go around the meal, around the table with our kind of kinship Sabbath community, and we share the highlight of our week. I can already tell you what this coming Sabbath's highlight will be. It was this morning. We just moved into town. We're coming down for what we're calling our family gap year to spend a week in Southern California, a year in Southern California, because who doesn't want to do that when we can? There's a whole backstory behind that, but this was our first weekend in town, and so we went out with Tion over here and Kaden, I don't know where you are, in the back, and they were kind enough to take myself and my two boys surfing. And uh, we're, surfing is one word for it. They were surfing, we were doing something else in the water with boys, but he was not surfing. But it was so much fun. I can tell you right now that next weekend when we sit down to our Sabbath meal, and when we go around the table, that is the story tell. That's the story that I will remember when I look back on this weekend. I will remember church and I will remember this morning. And that's because life is a series of moments. But not all moments are created equal. Some are much more important than others. Days like today are very important. A five-year anniversary, which 
And your story is more than just an arbitrary date on a calendar. It's the reality that you've made it kind of through COVID, and a lot of us did not. And so it's a sign that you're kind of here to stay as a community. You have been planted in the ground of Costa Mesa, and you have begun to take root, and you will last and bear fruit for years to come. And so this is an important moment. And on moments or days like today, we look back, and that was so helpful there, to see God's fidelity over our past. Arguably the most often repeated command in all of the library of scripture is do not fear. And scholars argue the second one right behind it is remember. And those two things go together. Remember and do not fear. Because the more that we can remember how God has been faithful to us in the past through the highs and the lows of our story together, the more we can live into our future without fear. So on days like today, we also look forward. Now I'm guessing, I don't know why Chris asked me to talk at all, but I'm guessing it's because I'm from Portland, Oregon, which is kind of possibly like a future or the future on the secularization curve of North America. The reality is that highly intelligent people, not yours truly, called futurists, gain extraordinary wealth and often a massive online following for their secularized kind of divination skills, their ability to predict or prophesy over the future. But honestly, that's a myth. There is no such thing as a futurist. Human beings are time-bound creatures. We live in time and we live in space in a body. That's why I'm wearing a watch, that's why you have a phone or a clock somewhere near you. And there's nobody that knows the future other than the Father. Even the Son, it's questionable. We don't know the future. Some are very educated guessers, and they make a lot of money off their high success rate. But none of us actually know what's going to happen. In reality, what we call futurists are actually presentists. They are able to interpret what's happening in the here and now better than most of us. Most of us can't do that. That's because, and if you're a neuroscientist in the room, forgive my gross oversimplification here, but as I understand it, the human brain is built by God to interpret the present moment based on past experience because it uses way less like brain power. That's why you're able to drive to church if you've been a part of this church for a while without barely even thinking about it because there's a past memory in your body that when you interpret a street sign or a turn signal, your brain barely has to do anything at all to just follow the route. It's why if you were ever attacked by a dog, anytime you walk by a dog on the sidewalk, your body is full of what? Fear. Even though it's not that dog, that might be a nice, sweet little poodle from a very Newport Beach kind of old woman. But you still feel that fear in your body because your brain is interpreting that dog based on that dog. Now that's a silly example, but this is why trauma that we carry in our bodies. It's one thing if it's a dog, what if it's your father? What if it's your husband or your wife? What if it was your pastor? What if it's a brutal experience from your past? This is where the healing of the soul in the way of Jesus is absolutely essential. So most of us interpret what's happening in culture based on what we've experienced in our past. And that works until it doesn't. Until we're in a cultural moment like this one. This lethal cocktail that we are living through of secularism, political polarization, the digital age, the corruption of the American church, and the highly publicized generation-wide breakdown in the integrity of pastors. 
We have not been here before in our lifetime, you and me and our generation. But we, and not in Chris's generation either, but we, as in the people of Jesus, have been here before in our story together. Church historians argue that our moment in culture has not been this way for about 1,500 years, since the very beginning of what historians call Christendom, the merging of the way of Jesus and the Roman Empire. They would argue that our moment is the most similar of the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries that it's ever been. And for that reason, I am no futurist at all. I'm not even really a very good presentist, but I work hard like a lot of you just to pay attention and grow in wisdom. But my firm conviction is that the future is ancient. The future of the church is not cooler branding on Instagram. It's not millennials realizing that you're kind of getting older and you're not as cool as you think you are, and so you better rise up to TikTok, which I don't think is that cool, but apparently that means that I'm not that cool. It's not adopting progressive theology to update yourself or your church for the modern era. That is a death sentence, not an extension of life. It's not better buildings. It's not more sophisticated strategies. It is a return to the ancient way of Jesus, to following Jesus together around a table when you gather to eat as a family, as a contrast community that is radically loving and radically different from the culture around you, whether that culture is that off-the-rails progressive culture like Portland, Oregon, or right here in the middle of Orange County. And if you look at the early church, they were marked by at least four aspects. And this is an oversimplification, but they were marked first off, as Matt said, by the table. That one of my favorite ways to kind of, I won't do it tonight, don't worry, but to teach on church history is just to tell the story of the church, at least in the West, over the last two millennia through architecture. There's about five major phases of the church that you can just talk about through the way churches were designed. What would come to mind when you think of a church? So right now when you imagine a church building, if you're in an urban context with those older buildings, you imagine like an old Presbyterian church or Baptist church. Or if you're in Orange County context, you imagine a large kind of office park built out with a theater in the inside. Other eras of the church, you would have imagined something totally different. The first architecture was a table. The next was a home. The next was what they called a basilica. After that was a cathedral. After that became the Reformation kind of preaching box. And after that, since about the late 1800s, it's been a theater. Well, that's a beautiful old church building with stained glass, but kind of space for music or a modern megachurch in an office park. It's still a theater. It's basically that model of church. Now, I don't say that to moralize it at all, just to say the earliest image, architecture image of the church wasn't even a home, it was a table. There's a group of people around that table. It's one of my favorite things about your community. It's one of the things that has become at the center of my grasp of what it means to be the people of Jesus together. The table, or tonight, the taco card. Secondly is family. We read that word brothers and sisters. It's a Delphoi in Greek. It literally means siblings. That is the primary word used for the people of Jesus in the New Testament. The word Christian, I'm sure you all know this, is only used three times in the New Testament, and most of the time in a negative sense. It was a slanderous word, it was an insult that hundreds of years later Christians began to self-identify with. The kind of second most common word is disciple or apprentice of Jesus, but the most common word in all of the New Testament, 350-something times, is Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. The ancient Mediterranean was different than our culture, what historians call a patrilineal culture. 
where the, it's a very long story, but the family kind of wealth passed from father to the eldest son, similar to like England is today. And in that model, and this is a very different culture than ours, it, your spouse was not actually a part of your family. Like if you were a woman and you married a man, you remained a part of your, of your birth family. You were married to another man, but you were still considered a part of your previous family. That's to say, in this culture, the closest kind of relationship between two human beings was between a brother and a sister. We think of it as between a husband and a wife. That's the most intimate relationship in our kind of nuclear family or individualistic Western culture. In the ancient world, it would have been between a brother and a sister. If you think about it, that's the relationship that you will have, God willing, the longest period of your life. Your parents will die. You did not meet or have not yet to meet your spouse until tonight at the taco cart. It's going to be a great moment. I'm really happy for you. But you will know your siblings theoretically longer than you know anyone else. And that relationship is the closest thing on offer to what it means to be the people of Jesus together. Brothers, sisters, intimate, close, with each other for the lifetime as family. But don't think family as in mom and dad and three kids or mom and dad got divorced or whatever. Family in the, in the kind of ancient Mediterranean was this idea of household. So you would have had a multi-generational family with parents and grandparents and grandchildren. They would have been in a home which was the center of commerce if they were a middle class or a wealthy family. There would have been employees and business partners. Then they would have brought in widows and orphans. They would have done justice together. And there would have been this family unit of 30, 40, or 50 people together that composed a house church together, a household. The closest word we have for it, I think, in English is this word kin where you intentionally blend biological family and people that might as well be biological family. That's what the church is, and that's what you right now model in this room tonight. Third is robust, or whatever you want to call it, discipleship to Jesus. There was no social pressure to be a Christian for 350 years. It was the exact opposite. To become a Christian was to literally stick your neck on the line, and that of your wife, child or your best friend or your spouse. Of course, that is the moment we are very slowly inching our way back into. But this table and this family was not just dinner with friends, people to hang out with after you go surfing and eat a donut together. It was people to follow, to apprentice under Jesus together with. The entire church was built around this. Because the gap between the ethic and the vision of life in the kingdom of God and that of Greco-Roman culture was so radically different that you couldn't just baptize somebody in and walk them into church. So I grew up in a church culture where you say yes to Jesus with your hand up. I don't even know what that means to this day, to say yes to Jesus. And then you kind of maybe go to like a welcome lunch at the church, and then you're in the church. It's like welcome. And that's because the gap, and I'm not even that old, but the gap between the kingdom of Jesus and kind of that broader culture, it wasn't that wide. But now, as we see, there's this massive gap. Think about human sexuality, where it's not just that culture is drifting, it's that what Jesus is saying is good, culture is saying is evil. And that's one example, and there's a growing number of those examples. In this kind of a cultural gap, you have to create a bridge for people called discipleship. You have to create a way for people to walk out of the secular Western culture we're in into the vision of Jesus that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount and the writings of the New Testament. So the early church developed this thing that they called the catechumenate. 
if you're Reformed or you come from a Calvinist church, not catechism, that's a Reformation Enlightenment idea that's based on just believing the right things about God. So you literally do a question and answer, do you believe all the right things about God? Because in the Reformation, one of the great oversimplifications or mistakes the Western church made was saying, if we just believe the right things about God, that's what salvation is, that's saving faith. What a tragedy that has just unleashed so much pain in the history of the Western church. But in the catechumenate, was a three-year-long training program that you had to go through before you could get baptized. It was led by all of the great doctors of the church, or kind of the heavyweights, and not even bishops, but like above the bishops of the church. They would do all of the teaching. You had to get a sponsor just to get in. So even to get into this program, you had somebody in Genesis or whatever had to like vouch for you and say, I believe this person is really serious about following Jesus. They're not going to deny the name of Jesus, and I will go through the whole program with them together. You spent three years going through teaching on theology, Trinitarian theology, ethics, learning all of the spiritual disciplines. You had, by the end, to commit to a rule of life, including fasting twice a week, radical generosity, living in community. You had to meet with the elders and have your career approved because certain careers were just not conducive and compatible with the way of Jesus. You had to go through a deliverance session because they just assumed that you were coming out of the world with demonic attachments. Then you had to fast for eight days through Holy Week before you could be baptized on Easter Sunday and welcomed into the family of God. Before that, when you would come, this is the whole church of Jesus for almost 400 years. When you would come to church on Sunday, at the very end when they got to the Lord's Supper and the, the kiss of peace and the blessing, you had to go outside and wait until you were finished with your program. Now that to us sounds borderline cultish. But this wasn't like a fringe group of wacky Christians in a warehouse in Costa Mesa. This was the church of Jesus across the Mediterranean world. Why? Because one, the gap, and because two, they were preparing people for a culture where they may have to stand at some point in their life before the imperial register and be asked, are you a Christian or not? Will you deny Jesus as Lord? And they had to be willing to die in that way. And so they took this thing really seriously. Do you take this thing really seriously? Table, family, discipleship, one more and then I'll be done. And that is just signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. From miracles to prophecy to healing to deliverance to acts of justice. Read the New Testament on a not like daily basis, but they embody the inbreaking kingdom or the rule and the reign of Jesus. In justice in particular, you know. They thought about justice very differently than we do, in particular those of us that are younger or were younger. They tend to think of justice, we tend to think of justice in the negative, about how we tear down what's gone wrong. And there's very much a place for that, that kind of a justice. You see it in the prophet Jeremiah, you see it in Jesus, in the cleansing of the temple. There is a very necessary moment for that. But most examples of justice in the life of Jesus and the life of the great Hebrew prophets are of a positive justice, meaning of them creating communities of justice and peace and shalom and wholeness and welcome and family and hospitality and bringing people in. There is one story of Jesus cleansing the temple, several stories of Jesus rebuking the religious leaders, and dozens of stories of Jesus welcoming the outcast to the table for dinner. And I think that's about the right ratio of angry Instagram posts to dinner. <laughs> I think we could learn a lot from that as a generation. Now, I'm sure I'm missing things, and forgive me if this is an oversimplification, I'm sure it is, but these very simple things, the table, 
family, discipleship, the kingdom of God. This is something that Instagram cannot do, that a great website cannot do, that a cool preacher guy or whatever cannot do. And I see all four of these things in the community. Not perfectly, because that doesn't exist. As the saying goes, if you find the perfect church, don't join, don't join it because you will ruin it, you know? <laughs> there is such a utopian streak in our generation that is just so tragic. As Bonhoeffer said, he who loves the idea of community rather than the community itself becomes the destroyer of the community. There's no utopian community, there's no perfect church. But you embody these things in your own human, faltering, stumbling forward, three steps forward, two steps back kind of way. And this is the future. This right here. Not this. This is not the future. Please. <laughs> I did not sign up for this. But this is the future of the people of Jesus. Ordinary people in plastic chairs in the parking lot, eating tacos around the body of the Lord of Jesus. Bless you as you follow Jesus.